0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, April 16th, 2023, we continue our series titled Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, A Servant of God, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 38. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. I was comparing myself to the people right around me. My standard of comparison was pretty low. And as we dive into the book of Luke, I think John might be having a similar message for us today because God's gonna show up and God's gonna speak to his people, his people that are religious people, men and women that would say, no, we are part of the family of God, we're children of Abraham, and God's gonna show up and go, yeah, but you guys think you are better than you are because you've been comparing yourselves to each other in the world. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to realize, hey, the people around you, they are not the standard. A perfect and holy God is the standard. And until we get our eyes off of everybody else and go, how do I measure up? And we look up at the holy God and go, man, I don't measure up at all. And God goes, exactly. That's why Jesus came. morning we're going to be finishing off chapter three and kind of finishing off that time in Jesus's life right before his, uh, his public ministry really starts. And we get a chance to look at a really significant fixture in his, his life was uh, a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an important servant here. And one of the things you're going to see this morning is four things that make him a very effective servant, a right servant, things that should be true of us, So I want to prepare you so that you can be thinking about making sure you take uh, notes and and see if you can emulate the same thing because if you're willing to embrace these truths, it will change your life, change everything about you. Now the context here is that Israel has gone 400 years without hearing from God. Um, That's kind of almost odd to think that. This is a people of God. And for whatever reason, you know they have wandered away and 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 sort of been attracted at other things, and God has you know allowed them to sort of take their own path. But now uh, that's come come to an end, and so they are they're longing to hear from God about something. And there's a sense here that maybe they're looking for some sort of a political freedom. They're they're probably looking for some sense that God would come along and he would remove the Romans and give their nation back to them so they could be guided in the way they want to be and believe the things that they want to do. And so they're hoping that a political leader will come along. And so the people seem excited about John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist is operating in a way that they're really not used to. You know, they see how he speaks. They, they hear his tone. They hear the things that he, he has to say. They see the response of the people. I mean, John the Baptist was, you know, a, a long ways away from like the big city of Jerusalem and, and that whole area. You know, he's, he's actually, you'd have to go down the wadis, down the mountain, because uh, Jerusalem was about 3,800 to 4,000 sort of feet high, and, and, and he would be down all the way on the other side of the Jordan. Well, that's below sea level, and so the path wasn't straight down. It would wind. And, and do all this, you know, kind of a way down. And people were coming out of all these places in the middle of nowhere because they hear something about God, you know, kind of using someone and they want to know. And so they trek out to, they, they, they leave, you know, Israel at that point and go into the Jordan where, where he's actually baptizing there. And they go and they notice here, they hear, hear about his emphasis on repentance, and they are fully aware that repentance always goes with a movement of God. Now, not to take away from the story, but if you you know if you've heard anything, you know over the last you know the several months, you know that there were a lot of reports about things that were going on at this Christian college in Kentucky, the Asbury, and a few other places, and quite a few other places actually. It spread out to state universities and everything like that. It was all predicated on one thing repentance a group of people that call themselves Christians that said I have not lived like I'm under a holy God that's what that means and they began to repent and God just blesses that loves that It's an amazing thing that happens. That was John's message. In fact, if you look back in Luke 3 and very early in verse 3, it tells us that John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And that was really a call to humility. Now, let's start here. Look at verse 15. Follow along with me. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So the people from the very beginning are asking, is this the coming Messiah that we've been waiting for? I mean, we've been waiting 400 years. Is this the guy? The Messiah being the one that would come from God that would deliver the people. John will give them their answer in verse 16. Look what he says. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming in the strap of his sandals. I am not worthy to you untie. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's basically it right there. John makes it clear, I am not the Messiah. And one of the beautiful things about that is, is he's really telling us, I know who I am and I know who I'm not. I'm not that one. Now, just to sort of prepare you before we jump into this, let me just say this. Between verses 15 to the end of verse 38, John's gonna give us four things. We're gonna see four things about being a servant of the Lord, a humble servant of the Lord. Here's the first one, because it starts off in verse 16 there. And that is, as a servant of the Lord, we should have a high view of God. Notice how he starts off here in verse 16. John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but, but what? But he he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. Now, that is an illustration that culturally does not mix very well in our modern society. We don't really get that. What are you saying? He's saying he's a servant, but he's not good enough to bend down and simply untie the strap? On his sandals, well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, again, context is everything. We live in a world today where we like cleanliness and so we pay taxes, right? Probably way too much. and and, and they, But they come along and, and your tax money comes along and they clean the roads up. And we put trash cans out and we fill them up with trash because we don't just throw things out. We don't throw them on the street. And when you're ready for you know, to eat a meal, you'll go to the market and you'll, you'll go there and you'll maybe buy a couple of steaks and you bring them home. That, that's already cut for you and sliced and put in a, a little wrapping like this so it doesn't leak blood all over the place. You probably wouldn't go out and kill something unless you live pretty far out over here you're probably not going to go out and kill something and then set at your front door and start carving it up and blood going everywhere and you know guts going everywhere we just wouldn't do something like that but back in the, the context here in those days is exactly what happened i mean how many of you have ever been to jerusalem or israel at all you been okay let me sort of get to give you the context here for all this the, the, the roads, the streets there and everything like that are not very wide. Probably in some places, eight feet, maybe as far up as maybe 12 feet wide. I mean, they even invented their own tractor that is really kind of real small like this to go up and down their byways. I mean, they, they just weren't very wide. And... and in the, problem, the, the making of those things, they would often like, let the natural slope of the land and they would try to make it so everything would flow to the middle and then it would all flow downhill. Very often, they'd have a divot. Even in, in the old city of Jerusalem, there's a divot in the middle so that all the liquids would flow down. What liquids are you talking about? Well, obviously rain would be one of those. But, you know, when you came home and you want to have dinner, again, it was not like, you know, someone could just run down to the local market and they filleted a couple of steaks for you and they've got them all wrapped up to you nicely. You came back with an animal and killed it right there. Ladies, are you going to let that happen in your house? I doubt it. I mean, probably not. You're going to do it outside the door, right? So everything will run away. You don't want it sitting in the house. So the blood there, the guts there, all that Furthermore, if you think about it, you got all these animals that would be walking up and down the street as a herdsman comes and maybe he's bringing, you know, a couple of the goats with him. and, And those things are not, you know, I mean, they're dropping animal waste. Is that the best I can, that's probably all I'm gonna say. Animal waste all over the ground that you're walking in. Plus, you know, every home in that case, they didn't have indoor plumbing. And so what do you do when, you know, you gotta go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Most of the time, those were buckets. And somewhere that bucket's gotta go. If you live in the middle of town, are you gonna walk, you know, uh, a 1,000 yards outside of town and and, and more than likely, you're gonna pour it someplace where it goes away, hopefully on its own. The point being is, in that culture, the roads were filthy. I mean, disgusting. And in every possible way, and you would wear these these sandals, open-toed sandals and stuff like that, and you walked around in this stuff all day long. So when you get home at the end of the day, it's not like you're just gonna walk in and no big deal. Somebody would meet you at the door, the lowest servant in the household, at that point, the lowest servant would meet you at the household, and their job was to bend down, take those sandals off, wash your feet so you could go into the house and live the rest of your life, and you know, that kind of that, that evening together as a whole family, and then they would clean up your sandals. And by the way, if there's more than one person, they're getting them all. And so culturally, this is a really big deal. The lowest servant in the house would come along, untie the sandal, and wash your feet. It was such a big deal that actually the rabbis used to have a teaching that said, even if you're a person that they follow you around, you're a teacher and you have disciples and they all do everything that you possibly could imagine, it would be an abuse of power for you to tell them to remove your shoes and to wash your feet. You can't do that. And yet, here you have John John the Baptist saying, I am not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals and wash his feet. I take that as a high view of God. By the way, Jesus will use the exact same illustration with his disciples. When he celebrated the Passover meal in Luke chapter 22, you know, he, he tells uh, Peter and John, I want you to go and you're gonna get this room and, and you get this room and you prepare the Passover meal. And then they all show up at the meal. When they get there, there's only one little quirky problem there. They get there and there's no servant there prepared to wash everybody's feet. They're all standing around kind of looking at each other. I mean, I, I could just imagine the little, you know, role play that's taking place. Well, I got the, you know, I got the lamb. Well, I, you know, I, I laid the pillows out. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, let them, so he's, he's the newest one, let him do it. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're thinking all these different thoughts. Jesus obviously knows it's a big deal, and so he just simply stops, takes a towel, ties it around his waist, and then he gets down on his knees And he begins to wash their feet. And they're completely embarrassed, utterly humbled, because they know exactly what he's doing here. They know exactly what's going on. This is the Lord, the king of the universe on his knees for me. It was a profound statement. And so when you go back here to Luke chapter three, verse 16 here, it is with total humility that John the Baptist here writes and says, I am not worthy to be the lowest servant in the household. That's the telltale sign of a real servant. I will tell you that they are not enamored with themselves, that God gets all the glory. The Lord loves Humility. Hates pride. You know, two weeks ago, a couple of weeks back when Mark was sharing at our 25th anniversary, Mark mentioned the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, stopping and saying, you know, I created all these things and I made, you know, all of these things, things he should not have done and God humbled him. Churches and pastors need to remember that as well. When God is at work and doing something, the only one should get credit for that is God himself. We are not you know, doing that because we are cool or we are wise. The truth of the matter is all true servants have a high view of God. What's that look like? Isaiah's case is he got this one little glimpse into heaven and all he could think of is wow. Woe is me. Job, who who went through all these hard things in a discussion with God finally stops and and he just stops and he can't even say anymore and he says, God, this is, your knowledge is too great, too high for me. High view of God is typically accompanied by a humble view of ourselves, which I will tell you is typically opposite in the world. The world has a, an incredibly high view of a human being. I mean, we, we hold us up like, well, we're capable of doing all these things and every possible thing that there is and we don't even know, you know, what's out there. That, that's another thing. That doesn't translate very well. You know, I have people that will say things to me at times like, well, you know, God's gonna have to explain himself to me before I would serve him. Or I know what the Bible says, but I just don't think that's fair personally. You know what you're saying there? You're basically confessing that you think you have a higher moral compass than God, that you're morally superior than God. That tells me you have no idea who you're talking to. It's why one of the things we need to be in church. I mean, one of the worst things that happened during, you know, the whole pandemic thing is, is you know, and we we're thankful that we were able to be online and stuff like that. But one of the things that happened by being solely online and never being able to gather together like this together was we missed that time of worship. Somehow it doesn't translate the same thing when we stop and we're singing, and you realize that the God of the universe has no rival or no equal. That should stop and go, wow. We need that in our lives. We need that, that time of, of having the world, you know, that, which pushes us this way and pushes us that way. We need to be pulled back to the place where God, because of worship and because we're in the word, you know, life can get reordered like it should be. It's very easy for us to get out here and, and put too much importance on this or, or not enough on this over here. But we need to get to the place where it all comes back together. God is on the throne and I'm down below and that is exactly how it should be. And I will tell you that when that happens in your life, you feel great about it because it's the way it's supposed to be. A high view of God. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse three warned us. He said, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. The reason why he says that is because it clearly was an issue. And that's what makes John the Baptist such a great role model here. John is saying, I'm not even in the same league as Jesus. Now think about who this is coming from. This is coming from a guy who had a miraculous birth. This is coming from a guy who, who, whether you realize it or not, was a prophet. And he, he prophesied about things. This is coming from a guy that large crowds of people are coming out to here. I mean, they're traveling distances out to the middle of nowhere to just to see and hear this guy. I mean, if anybody you would think would have the right to sort of have a high view of himself, it would have been him. And yet he's humble. Why? He gets who God is. Now, there's a second thing here that you see in John the Baptist's life here. And that is, as servants, we should have a limited view of our ability, but an unlimited view of God's. Go back to verse 16 again. Again, he says, and and John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying here is, the best I can do is baptize you with water. Which, by the way, let me just be clear here. When it comes to baptism, and the baptisms today were amazing, and we'll have some more right afterwards too, and I'd encourage you to come and be a part of that, but the issue of baptism is that person's testimony of what Christ has done. You will see in that whole process, you will see a symbolism of what happens, that a person will go down under the water. It's like going down into the grave and coming back up out of the water is like coming to new life all over again. It is a declaration that we make to people that someone is saying, I trust in the saving work of of Christ and what He's done in my life. But when we do that, we allow like volunteer leaders, we allow moms and dads to do the baptism because it's not the person that's baptizing. It's the person being baptized. And so here you get John, he's he's trying to be clear. The best I can do is baptize you with water. I can do the limited thing, the symbolic thing, but. He stops there in verse 16, but i talking about Jesus, but one is coming and he has unlimited abilities and he will baptize you with a Holy Spirit. And then he mentions the word fire. I, I, I have to be honest with you. I've kind of wrestled with that word fire for about two weeks now. And in this particular situation, fire is not a good thing, I don't think. If you look at verse 17, you'll see that fire refers to judgment. In fact, throughout the book of Luke, in chapters 9 and 12 and 17, fire is always a metaphor for God's judgment. And so here in verse 16, fire describes, I believe, what will happen to those who reject Christ. See, those that are baptized with the Holy Spirit and then fire is about the separation of those who believe and those who do not believe. Look at verse 17 for a minute here. He says here, he said, well, in of verse 16, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into its barn, but the he will burn with unquenchable fire. And right, so John here expl- he kind of makes this explanation of the word fire in the context of judgment. Um, I'm I'm gonna go out and step on a limb here. I think this is probably one of those really hard ones here, but I'm betting that you don't have a winnowing fork at home in your shed. Right. It's probably not one of those things. In fact, many of you may not even know what it's like. Let me give you a picture up here that kind of shows you what this is. A winnowing fork was all about taking like the wheat and, and, and the grains and those things like that and taking them, lifting them up, throwing them high as you can into the air over and over again and allowing the wind to blow through and to blow the chaff, what is not part of the, the, what you wanted, what they didn't want to keep, to blow that away. And then ultimately what's left there would be the wheat. They would do that so that they could separate the you know the wheat from the chaff. It was a system of judgment. So clearing the threshing floor meant separating the wheat from the chaff, the real from the unreal. Now there's a third thing you see here in the life of of Joseph and that is in verses 18 through 20 and that is that as servants our message should be centered on God's truth. Look at verse 18. He says, and so with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. What's good news? Hope, forgiveness, new life, Relationship with Jesus, peace with God, purpose in life, security, grace. The fact that you, you, you didn't even deserve any of it. You know, this is our role. What John does here is he preaches that good news to the people. That is the role that we have You know, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, it reminds us that, you know, how will they hear without people telling? Well, those people that are telling are all believers that were given that gospel message because by grace we got saved. That message is our message now, just like it was John's. John is doing what we're all called to do. He's bringing the good news, but along with the good news, is also the not so good news, and that is that you and I are sinners. Um, that's, that's not one that most people like. People don't wanna to be told that they're doing something that's wrong. People love to remind me, I get this all the time, people are me, well, you know, God is love. And my thing is, absolutely. 100%. I, I guarantee he is the manifestation of perfect love in every possible way. But I said, you stop too soon. He's also holy. He's holy. And because he's holy, you need to understand something. He is the one that decides what is okay, not culture. He does. He decides that you will go left or you will go right because that's the route he wants you to do, not culture. That means that the message of love and forgiveness that you and I have also has the message of a sin that separates us from God. Look at verse 19 here because you're gonna see that John proclaimed that truth to King Herod and Herod did not like it very much and had him thrown in jail. Verse 19 says, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him, that was John, Herodias, his brother's wife, and had done for all the evil things that Herod had done. Well, what evil had Herod done? Well, first of all, you understand Herod was a um Herod came from a very weird family. That's one of the nicest things I could probably say. Um, he had lots of half-brothers. I mean, lots. And that meant that he had, there were probably lots of, of, of wives in the house and lots of husbands and lots of, you know, divorces that took place. In other words, there's a slew uh, of people that somehow fit in their, their, their family tree here. Now, what makes it really weird is this. He marries this woman here named Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of one of his half brothers. She had already married another half brother and then left him for this half brother, Herod. Didn't this sound greasy, kind of yucky, you know? And nobody wanted to say anything to them at all because they're all completely petrified of Herod. But John does. You see, the truth is, the good news is the fact that God loves us and God will forgive us. The bad news is, I need to be forgiven. I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. I have done wrong. Herod didn't like that. Had him thrown in jail and ultimately cost him his life. Now, keep going here because between verses 21 and 38 you're going to get the fourth thing that he learns. And that is as servants, we need to know the King that we serve. Drop down to verse 21. He says, and now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Okay. Really important question here. Why was Jesus baptized? I thought he never sinned. He didn't. So why was he baptized? Well, If you were to venture over into the book of Matthew, you'll see that in Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist actually sees Jesus coming and he stops and he says, what are you doing here? I'm gonna be, I wanna be baptized. He's like, no, you should be baptizing me. So John gets who he is, right? And Jesus says, no, we need to do this for all righteousness sake. What does that mean? To fulfill, to do the right thing, to fulfill the law. Let me explain. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthews five, six, and seven, one of the things that Jesus said was, he says, I don't come to abolish the law, I come to what? Fulfill the law. Perfectly. And he didn't do anything wrong, but he would come and he'd be the perfect fulfillment of the law. So he gets baptized so he can perfectly fulfill the law. Look at verse 22. It says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. Folks, this is the Trinity on display right here. You know, some people will ask, well, I don't know if I really understand the whole tr- the Trinity thing. Well, here it is. Right here, you can see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. He lands upon the Son and you hear the voice of the Father telling us Jesus is the Son. All of them together at one time. God in three persons. Do not buy into, there is a, um, a heresy that is going around out there right now called modalism. Modalism basically says he was the father, became the son, and now he lives as the spirit and the other two don't matter anymore. That is not true at all. Biblically, the father is in heaven on the throne. The son right now, according to the book of Revelation, is sitting next to him, seated next to the father right now until the day he returns and the Holy Spirit is indwelling inside of us, if you're a believer. All three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Look at verse 23. It says, and Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So Jesus was 30, which was sort of considered the age of full maturity, and in fact, in Numbers chapter four, verses two and three, it tells us that is the age that you could become a priest is 30 years of age. Now keep going. Between verses 23 and 38, you're gonna run into Jesus's royal lineage. Now, let me just be clear here about this. Luke's lineage that he mentions here is different than Matthew's lineage. Why? Well, it has to do with which family tree do you follow? You see, Matthew follows Joseph's. Family tree. And I'll show you why in a minute. Luke follows, mentions Matthew, but follows Mary's line. Now I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come out and join me. Let me walk you through some of these names here. I'm not gonna read every name for you. It's 14 verses of names here, so you can do that one on your own, but I do wanna highlight a couple of them. Verse 25, he mentions Nahum, And Amos; Those are both prophets in the Old Testament. Verse 27, he mentions a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, just to give you an idea where Zerubbabel fits into this whole thing, you know, there was a time when when a lot of people in Israel, a lot of the children of Israel got carted away by the Assyrians into Babylon and they became slaves there for a long time. And ultimately, they were allowed, many of them were allowed to come back. Well, one of the guys that had a burden to go back was a guy named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel felt like God was calling him to come back and to stop and help clean up Jerusalem to rebuild the wall so that people would be safe because at this point, you know, people could come and rob them and attack them and and stuff like that. And so how we learned it in seminary was Zerubbabel was the guy that cleaned up the rubble. There's a freebie for you right there, okay. Okay. Verse 29, he mentions Joshua. Joshua, of course, is uh, the guy that when Moses, you know, came to the end of his life, God said, give the children of Israel the leadership of that group to Joshua, and he took the children of Israel into the promised land. Then you have, you know, King David, of course, you know, the second king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, incredibly important. The scripture, Boaz, the the, the husband of Ruth, uh, Jacob and Isaac, Shem, Noah, Methuselah, You ever heard someone say, well, that's old. You guys older than Methuselah. Actually, nobody was older than Methuselah, okay? He lived the longest in all of the Bible. And then in verse 38, he mentions the son of Adam and the son of God. So why the different tree? Matthew is focused on tracing Joseph's genealogy back to Abram. Abraham became, Abram became Abraham. He mentions 41 names. The reason why that matters is because, see, Matthew is much more focused on a gospel that will go to a Jewish believer and helping them understand how it fits for them. Luke is not. Luke is focused on Mary's genealogy, again, even though Joseph is is certainly mentioned here, but, but that genealogy, which mentions 57 names, will all the way back to Adam showing a commitment that anyone can come to faith in Christ, anyone. Now think about that. What that tells me there at the end is some really important things for you to think through. He's the son of Adam, which tells me he's lived a human life. He is 100% man. He has the ability then to go and to make a sacrifice of his life for you. He is is the son of God. He is 100% God. He is the God man. Come to earth for us. I'm gonna be honest with you. The only thing I can do with that is is offer you an opportunity to respond. That the God of the universe would send his son and go through all of that detail so that you might one day pray and ask him to forgive you and to be your king. You could begin that relationship this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you would move in the hearts and minds of our people, Lord, and if there's anyone here, Lord, that their heart is racing and they want to be right with you, they like to have that relationship with you, I pray, God, that you would take those, those thoughts that are deep in their heart, the words that they express quietly before you to forgive them to come and live inside of them, to dwell inside of them by your Holy Spirit, to give them a future with you, a purpose that your righteousness might make them right enough to be in heaven with you. Folks, if you're wanting to pray that prayer, just in your own words, take a moment and express those truths. Ask God to forgive you, ask him to live inside of you. Father, do not let the fears of the people that are around us, the fears of what someone might think, interrupt a moment for someone to be right with you. Let me encourage you that if you prayed that prayer, at the end of our service, not only will there be people that will be down here that would love to be able to pray with you, but we have a, a, a section back in the back over there that says, follow Jesus. Please, Stop by there. The last thing, the worst thing that you could possibly do is pretend that it didn't happen or tell no one. You need that opportunity to have people that will love you and encourage you, that will pray with you and pray for you and to give you some great direction. Stop by there. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you loved us enough to send your son to come to die for us that we might be your children, Lord. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if, you, if you'd like for someone to pray with you, pray for you, to someone to talk to, again, there are some people that will be down here. They would love to be able to spend a few minutes with you. If you prayed that prayer to ask Christ to come into your life, take control of you, please stop by the table back there. We'd love to get some things in your hand to help this newfound walk in Christ work, really work for the rest of you. God didn't save you just so you can get into heaven. He saved you so that you would be his servant, that you would bear his name, Christian, little Christ, okay? This week, here's what you need to do to do that well. Get a high view of him, a lower view of your abilities. Get his message down to speak and get to know who he is. And watch what God does with you, it'll be amazing. It'll be a blessing. God bless you, love you all, have a good day.